The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the program. This is Squawk Box. We are live in London and Rome. Here are your headlines this hour. Sterling slides as Her Majesty the Queen greenlights the Prime Minister Boris Johnson's plan to suspend Parliament from early September for up to five weeks, raising the prospect, many say, of a no-deal Brexit on October 31st. Been outraged. Critics have slammed Johnson's move as an insult to democracy, but the UK leader has defended his decision, saying there'll be plenty of time for MPs to debate Brexit. There will be ample time on both sides of that crucial October the 17th summit. Ample time in Parliament for MPs to debate uh, the EU, to debate Brexit, and uh, all the other issues. Ample time. Meanwhile, the Italian political crisis is set to come to an end for now, with PD and Five Star expected to form a coalition government led by Giuseppe Conte. Energy leads U.S. stocks higher as the Dow jumps more than 250 points, but investors remain on edge while bond yields hover near record lows. So there have been major political developments across Europe in the last 24 hours, both in the UK and in Italy. Steve is in Westminster and Germana is in Rome, of course. Germana will get to you a little later on the developments on this coalition uh, in Italy. But first, let's focus on the UK and let's uh, talk a little bit about what exactly Boris Johnson has done. The Queen has approved the Prime Minister's decision to suspend Parliament in the week beginning the 9th of September. So that's when Parliament should originally have met. That means pro-EU lawmakers will now have less than a week to try and thwart a no-deal Brexit. The Prime Minister has denied that the proroguing of Parliament was about removing that debate time. Let's hear what he said. That is uh, completely untrue. If you look at what we're doing, we're bringing forward a new legislative programme on crime, on hospitals, uh, making sure that we have the uh, education funding that we need. And there will be ample time on both sides of that crucial October the 17th summit, ample time in Parliament for MPs to debate uh, the EU, to debate Brexit and uh, all the other issues. Ample time. Well, the decision has sparked fury among Johnson's critics. Thousands of people took to the streets of London to voice their anger. Protesters shouted, stop the coup, as they marched towards Downing Street. Meanwhile, an online petition to stop Parliament suspension has collected more than a million signatures. There's also a legal challenge in the works. 
Let's take a look at sterling. Yesterday, we saw a, a pretty sharp, sharp reaction initially on the back of this news, but it ended up closing off the lows of the day versus the dollar. It currently is down about 0.4% versus the dollar around that 1.22 level. So finding a bit of a floor, I think the big questions now are what this means for the a potential no confidence vote, a potential general election, and of course, what signal this sends to the EU. So a lot for analysts and traders to digest at this stage. So let's talk about um, what happens from here. Steve is at Westminster this morning. Steve, very good morning to you. So if Boris Johnson is claiming this is not about delaying the debate time and stymieing uh, some of the plans that the Remainers may have, um, why do it? Well, that's disingenuous for a start. I think, I think even the admirers of Boris Johnson secretly would probably admit that as well. But is he doing something illegal? Absolutely not. Is he doing something unconventional? Absolutely. Is it unconstitutional? Uh, and that is where the grey area is. It's not illegal. So actually any court uh, order or court process that said, is this illegal, this uh, prorogation of Parliament, Parliament would be very swiftly dealt by the courts. But is the advice given by to the Queen uh, by the Privy Council, led, uh, of course, yesterday uh, by Jacob Rees-Mogg going up to Balmoral. Uh, is that advice uh, unconstitutional? And are there grey areas there? May well be. So will uh, John Major, as previously promised, the former Prime Minister, will he uh, go to the courts? Remains to be seen. Will someone like Gina Miller go to the courts? Again, it's already in the courts in Scotland. Joanna Cherry, who is the Justice Minister for the SNP, is already taking it through the Scottish courts. Of course, Scotland voted to remain uh, in the EU, if indeed it were a separate jurisdiction, of course. Um, so there are lots of different avenues legally where people are thinking about but will that be forlorn maybe but there are other avenues of course to go down but is it uh, an outrage is it a threat to democracy as well well here's one little interesting fact the actual number of parliamentary days that have probably been lost for debate if indeed there were to have been the recess for the uh, conferences is around about four days Parliament's lost around about four days of debate. And some of those who are pro Boris Johnson's move have said, look, they've had three years to debate this. And what he's doing is actually direct democracy, uh, working on behalf of the people who voted uh, for uh, Brexit. And of course, others are saying this is the diminishment uh, of Parliament. Uh, uh, John Burko on his uh, holiday was saying it's blindingly obvious what the Prime Minister is doing and reckless and what have you. But there have been other detractors. And let's listen to a few of them, starting off with the leader of the opposition. What the Prime Minister is doing is a sort of smash and grab on our democracy in order to force through a no-deal exit from the European Union. What's he so afraid of that he needs to suspend Parliament to prevent Parliament discussing these matters? If MPs don't find a way of coming together next week to stop Boris Johnson in his tracks, then today will go down in history as the day any semblance of UK democracy died. This is an outrageous power grab by a Prime Minister who is unelected in terms of the people of this country. A tiny proportion of people have voted him in as Prime Minister. It is profoundly undemocratic to shut Parliament down, to stop it doing its job at a time of national crisis like this. So what happens next? Well, Parliament will reconvene next week on the 3rd of September. Then this prorogation will probably happen uh, in the week between the 9th and the 12th, going to the 14th of October when the Queen's speech will occur. Uh, this is if things go without any interruption so far. But next week, there's around about four days of debate where the opposition uh, to what the Prime Minister has done has got an opportunity to potentially take control of the order paper, the uh, so-called so, so Standing Order 24, force an emergency debate and then have 
something unprecedented, which is a vote on that, which could then force the Prime Minister potentially uh, to go to Brussels and ask for an extension to that October 31st date of Brexit as well. That would potentially thwart uh, Boris Johnson's plan here uh, and his calibration, so to speak. But then people are talking about this no-confidence vote. And let me just tell you how this can go. It can go two ways. One, if there is a no-confidence vote, of course he could survive it. But if he fails in a no-confidence vote brought about by the opposition, supported by the likes of Dominic Grieve on the Remain side of the Conservative Party, then it can go one of two ways. Well, then the, the, the Prime Minister can say, oh, OK, here's your 14 days to try and form a government. If no one can form a government, uh, then he can set the general election date. So then all his promises and, his man, uh, and, and ideas for the Queen's speech turn into, funnily enough, a manifesto for a general election. But he could set the date for after Brexit, which would, again, take control away from those Remainers who are trying to thwart him as well. Or those people, including Jeremy Corbyn, could try and form a caretaker government with Jeremy Corbyn as potentially a caretaker prime minister. Now, whether that's palatable to conservatives, he would need to block to support him remains to be seen. So people are talking about maybe a compromise candidate, someone like Harriet Harman or Sir Ken Clark from the conservative side of the benches to lead a caretaker government to force an extension uh, of the, uh, the Article 50 process and then have a general election at a later date once Article 50 has been extended as well. So a, a very complicated situation. Uh, and the political timetable are adding to the complications. Let me just tell you what the timetable looks like so far. So, 3rd of September, uh, MPs come back, as we mentioned. The prorogation of Parliament will happen on the week starting the 9th of September. Then we've got the conference season, where we were going to have a recess anyway. This is the point that Boris Johnson was going to make. The Liberal Party uh, conference, followed by the Labour Party conference, and the Conservative Party conference from mid towards the end of September as well. That was going to be a three-week recess anyway. That is why the Prime Minister is saying it's nothing particularly unusual here as well adding in the Queen's speech well but of course the oppo was saying they were probably going to try and get rid of that recess anyway and one key date which I'm sure Jumana has been looking at as well is the European Council Summit on October 17th and 18th that is a key date for everyone's diary in this process back to you Steve we are slowly coming to expect the unexpected uh, as every day passes here when we look at the politics of the Western world at the moment but there are precedents for Parliament sitting elsewhere and choosing to take against the government. And uh, I know you've been diving into the history books. One that I particularly enjoyed uh, reading up on was Charles I and the mongrel parliament that sat in Oxford rather than in London. Um, what other precedent is there for Parliament actually to say, you know what, we are not going to accept this. Constitutionally, I guess it would be very dangerous, but we will con continue sitting in another place. Um, almost unlikely to happen, to be honest. As we know, Charles I didn't end too well, of course. Uh, he uh, prorogued Parliament and the ability of Parliament to uh, curtail uh, royal policies many times in the 1620s, if we're going back that far as well. Uh, and then, of course, that led to, dare I say it, the first English Civil War. I say the first, just in case there's another one. Let's hope not. But it led to the Civil War, uh, which ultimately led to, uh, just before 1650, Charles I losing his head. Uh, then you can go a little bit further back, or a little bit 
nearer to uh, modern times. 1653, the Rump Parliament as well, uh, where uh, Oliver Cromwell uh, stormed in uh, and said, in the name of God, go to the Parliament as well. Uh, bringing it forward a little bit late, 1854, Queen Victoria. I can come back a little bit more now to 18, uh, beg pardon, 1948, Clement Attlee uh, tried to prorogue Parliament to get his policies through, but was thwarted by the House of Lords. And that could happen uh, again this time around on both sides of the debate. 1997, there was a, a prorogation of Parliament from John Major, who didn't want the cash for questions inquiry uh, answers spilling onto the uh, uh, onto the tabloids before we had a general election as well. So it's been used a lot of times, but not to the length that uh, Boris Johnson is talking about, not since the English Civil War, as I mentioned as well. So it, is it unprecedented? Yes, in the length of it. But is it unprecedented as well? The fact that we're in such constitutionally turbulent times? Yes. But can he do it legally? It looks like he can. Steve, thank you for that uh, comprehensive historical context. Stay with us. We're going to bring in our first guest now, Sunaina Sinha, CEO of Sabiel Capital. Uh, I want to pick up on Steve's point about the European Council meeting that's set to take place in late October and the importance of this in the context of what we saw yesterday. And there's debate swirling now around what signal this move from Boris Johnson sends to the EU. On the one hand, you could argue that suspending Parliament increases the risk of no deal. So sends a signal that this threat is now even more credible. But on the other hand, it could actually hurt his position with the EU as it might strengthen their suspicion that he's actually gunning for uh, a win in an election. So what's your view? Does this hurt or hinder Boris Johnson's position there? Well, I think in his view, it certainly helps him. Whether that actually turns out to be the case remains to be determined. I think there's still a lot of hands left to play here. As we're seeing on a day-by-day basis, what we have for sure is a lot of uncertainty and a lot of bold moves being made. Boris Johnson has no choice but to, but to pander to the base, to the right-wing base, that's the Brexit voting base, of his own party, but also of the constituency that voted for Brexit, saying, I am going to deliver this. Now, what flavor of Brexit he has to deliver, that's the big debate right now. Uh, it's interesting that the prorogation move comes less than 24 hours after the opposition parties met and said that they were going to do everything pow- in, 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 in their power to thwart uh, a no-deal Brexit except a vote of no confidence. So they have to go back to the drawing board now and see what they will trigger as a reaction to this move. I think what he's doing is buying himself some time with Parliament, that he doesn't have to deal with Parliament for at least a couple more weeks than originally planned to give him some time to play his hand out with the European Union. Um, I think the European Union has held very strong over the last couple of uh, years. I don't see why they would feel like their hand is being forced at this stage. Sunaina, your um, natural hunting ground is in the private uh, private equity universe and you advise companies um, and investors. Um, This is great for you, isn't it? More chaos, more polarisation in the political process in the UK, weakening sterling, driving down valuations of listed equity. This is more blood in the water for the sharks that you you give advice to. Well... To an extent. So yes, lower valuations are sometimes welcome news to investors looking to buy companies uh, because at the end of the day, the comparables come down and so therefore your entry valuations will come down accordingly. However, we haven't seen that happen to such an extent over the last three years. Remember, Brexit is not today's news. We've been ta- all been diving into history books and learning about everything from Article 50 to prorogation overnight. Uh, the point being that uh, you have a, a certain benefit to private markets to an extent with markets coming down. However, not to the extent where it if impacts the real economy. 
So the big question with Brexit is what is the actual impact on the real economy? How does it impact the consumer? How does it impact the high street? How does it impact UK businesses who are manufacturers or exporters and or importers for that matter? And if that impact is meaningful, then the markets will freeze here. I mean, that's the reality. Will they freeze or will they actually, actually stop trading or stop doing M&A deals until they figure out where the direction of Brexit is going to be? That's the open question. So far in the last three years, we haven't seen too much of a slowdown in M&A activity in the UK, but that remains to be determined. We have four very uncertain weeks coming up here. Steve, come on in. Selena, very good morning to you. Loving hearing what you had to say this morning. But I'm just wondering if we're all asking the wrong question, and that includes me, I have to say, as well. Selena, is this about what Britain is like as an investable location, what stock markets and private markets are going to be like under a Conservative government led by, at the moment, Boris Johnson, it seems, or under a Labour government, which, let's face it, has a pretty socialist manifesto compared with previous Labour opposition parties? Well, so, oh, yes, Brexit is a clear and present issue which needs to be got over. But in the medium term, is this about the destiny politically and in terms of issues such as privatisation, nationalisation, taxation, uh, and indeed what kind of money is going to be spent by this country on a debt to GDP ratio? Is that the key question rather than this Brexit one, which I am completely occupied with? Uh, You're absolutely right. The key question for investors, especially private markets investors who are buying a business or investing in, in, in private assets, is the medium to long term one. Which government is right for the medium to long term from a market's perspective seems to be a pro-market government, which is the Conservative Party. And so far, the Boris Johnson government has made all the right noises to that effect. But I think the key question is what happens between now and then? And when is then? Is then a year from now? Is then three or four years from now? Um, Does the UK help send global growth lower as the rates market have showed in the last uh, couple of, well, yesterday for that matter and, and in the past as well? Does the UK enter into a recession itself for the next three or four years? Those are the open markets related questions. But I think the best thing the UK has going for it in the, in the face of Brexit and, and a potential downturn is the fact that the UK has a large number of captive investors based here locally. The market here is very vibrant with respect to both businesses and investors. We don't have to go hunting internationally if we don't need to. Excellent. Thank you very much indeed for that. More constitutional history from uh, the United Kingdom in just a few minutes. And we might even find out uh, why Mr Machiavelli has been so active, not only in the UK, but over in Italy, of course. Uh, We'll get into the Italian politics in just a moment. So what are the markets making of all this noise, Juliana? Well, Jeff, it was a a fairly volatile day on Wall Street yesterday, albeit the magnitudes of the swings we saw were pretty contained. As you can see beside me here, all three major indices ended in positive territory. The Nasdaq up about 0.4%, the S&P 500 up 0.65%, and the Dow Jones up about 260 points. Now, early in the session, we did see those swings between uh, losses and gains. Ultimately, sentiment was capped in part by the moves we saw in the Treasury market. We saw yields move lower yet again. Again, so those recession fears continue to weigh on overall uh, investor sentiment and appetite for risk assets. Uh, as we mentioned in the headlines there, energy was the key outperformer of the day of the S&P 500 sectors. Energy was the strongest performer, up about 1.4%. The only sector that ended in negative territory was utilities. So clearly a, a defensive tilt there when it comes to the underperformance of the day. Uh, let's move on, though, and take a look at the Treasury market. As I said, uh, of course, markets o- overall very closely watched 
watching the yield curve in the U.S. The 30-year had a pretty big day yesterday, hitting an all-time low of 1.905%. It did close off those lows, currently trading at 1.9289%, but well below that 2% mark that we had been watching very closely. It breached that for the first time ever uh, just uh, over a week ago. The 10-year currently sitting at 1.45%. So those concerns around the inverted yield curve remain very much alive and well. Let's move on and take a look at oil markets. We did see uh, some uh, fairly substantial moves in oil yesterday. The oil price gained nearly 2% for both WTI and Brent, and that came after a larger-than-expected decline in U.S. crude stockpiles. That helped to ease these concerns around recession that were emanating uh, from the yield curve inversion. Gold, meanwhile, currently up about 0.2%. Yesterday, we saw gold slide uh, just about the same, so regaining the losses yesterday as some of that allure for safe havens dissipated as investors put their money back into equities. Let's take a look at Asian markets, where trade has been fairly mixed if you look at the overall region. Looking at these key indices here, the Shanghai Composite, just a touch in negative territory, about 0.16% down. Hang Seng down about a third of a percent, and the Nikkei 225 pretty much flat on the day. Let's take a look at European opening calls now. Uh, Brexit and Italy, uh, safe to say, sharply in focus today. Uh, we're looking at a negative start to trade across all four of these major regions. FTSE 100 looking at a 24-point drop, and uh, that comes after yesterday we saw outperformance in the FTSE 100 as sterling declined. Excellent. Thank you. Coming up on the program then, uh, we promised uh, more on the politics. Italy inches closer to a new government with an old face at the top. We'll have the latest from Rome when we come back. A CNBC signature event. East Tech West, CNBC's exclusive invitation-only retreat returns to Nanshao, Guangzhou, China in 2019. We explore all things tech from artificial intelligence to 5G. Join the world's most prolific investors, inventors and entrepreneurs as they share their stories and celebrate innovation. Visit EastTechWest.com for an application to attend. So the plot thickens over at UBS. A little bit of news uh, out overnight in terms of uh, the uh, spinning door for um, executive positions here. And I think the, t the key one that we should mention here is that Martin Blessing um, uh, will be leaving. This is um, Martin Blessing, the co-president of Global Wealth Management. Um, Iqbal Khan is coming into the business, um, ex-Credit Suisse, and reading some of the Swiss press, um, Mr. Khan has been mentioned in the past as a potential replacement for Sergio Amotti. There are some other moves here, but I think that's the most noteworthy one. And of course, in the context of the conversations that we understand have been had around a UBS Deutsche Bank um, meeting of minds on some business areas, maybe a coalition in some business areas, this again is fascinating. So just be aware uh, keep your eye on UBS as we get to the open, just to get a sense of um, how the markets may respond to this adjustment and whether Mr. Khan is actually being positioned here as uh, an Amati replacement at this point. 
All right, uh, we'll keep an eye on UBS for sure. Also keeping an eye on Italy this morning. Italy has moved closer to a new government after the five-star movement and Democratic Party agreed to form a coalition. After days of talks, leaders of the two parties said they would work together for the good of the country, with the PD backing five-star's choice of Giuseppe Conti as prime minister. And Italy's two-year bond yield fell to the lowest level since May 2018, while the 10-year yield hit a record low, below 1% on the prospect of a new government. President Sergio Mattarella has summoned Giuseppe Conti for a meeting at the palace at 9.30 CET this morning, where he's expected to offer him a fresh mandate. Well, let's get out to Germana, who's been covering all of this on the ground in Rome. Germana, quite a marathon day for Italian politicians. I know you've been covering it all uh, right up with Right, right as well. Uh, so uh, give us the latest uh, in terms of this coalition. What are the next steps and are there any obstacles that still stand in the way of this coming together and actually uh, sealing the deal? Indeed, it was quite a marathon day, Juliana, with all of the political parties heading into, right into that presidential palace behind me, having their consultations with the president, and at the end of the consultations, announcing where they were standing with respect to this potential new coalition government. So what we did find out yesterday from both leaders of PD and the Five Star is that they have agreed indeed on putting forward Prime Minister Conte as their nomination for the next prime minister. We know that the president, Peter Mattarella, has now summoned Conte to come to this presidential palace at 9.30 local time, 8.30 British time, where he's expected to give him that mandate to form the government. So next steps from here, it's not all going to happen in 24 hours. They still actually need to agree on joint policy proposals. It's unclear at this point whether or not the two sides can come together on some joint plans. As Mr. Salvini put it yesterday, if the only thing that binds them is a joint hatred of us, what longevity could this government have? So that's number one. Number two, question questions about the composition of this government. And uh, you remember Beppe Grillo, who's the founder of the Five Star Movement, yesterday evening threw a spanner in the works and he said that this future government should perhaps be composed of technocrats and not ministers. And obviously that would not agree very well for PD lawmakers who have been trying to put forward some of the names that we mentioned yesterday. Uh, Paduan, for example, for fi min uh, finance minister. Uh, Paolo Gentiloni is one of the other names that is coming up as well as uh, a name putting, being put forward for Italy's EU commissioners. So it will be interesting to see whether or not the two can uh, resolve their differences. Plus, one more thing to add to the mix as well, it's Five Star have an online democratic voting system called Rousseau. So the last time they entered into government with Lega, they set, they had a vote for all of their party members where every single party member of Five Star had a say in whether or not they would agree with that government going ahead. This time around, things are a little bit different because certainly there are many members within the Five Star movement who feel a bit betrayed, given that it started out as an anti establishment party and here they are potentially jumping into government with one of the most established parties out there. Now, assuming that does pass, uh, then what would happen is Conte would then go back to Mattarella, present the list of ministers, after which it's then put forward to both chambers in the Italian Senate and the Ch uh, Chamber of Deputies, and they vote on that government. They give it a vote of confidence. Assuming that passes, then we will finally see a coalition government, a new coalition government out of Italy. But I guess the bigger question still for investors is how long is this one going to last for? Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com.
Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.